Hey everyone, welcome to the Debatable Podcast. I'm Greg Sadashne. Uh, this is number 20. Uh, it's a big milestone, uh, just like number 10 was, just like number 5 was, and uh, for me, just like number 1 was. Um, if you had asked me back then did I think we were going to make it to 20, uh, you know, I, I would have said, hey, I would be happy if I made it to 5. And, um, you know, I thought if I was passionate enough, if I was into the, the audio gear, if I was into the producing of it, the talking, um, you know, the aspect of, of scheduling guests that I really wanted to talk to and have con- uh, great conversations with, if I thought that I could continue doing that uh, past the fifth episode, I thought I would pick up enough steam and I would make this happen. Now, you know, this this kind of intro is kind of usually, uh, it's uh, dedicated to someone who has done 50 or 100 of these. Um, you know, uh, to do 20 episodes, uh, let's say at, at an average of, that's probably 40 hours that I've put out. Uh, between 35 and 40 hours of content and that's just that's including stuff that I have edited that includes music uh, both from Music Alley and from artists that I know personally Uh, for instance Tom Symes group uh, and his record label um it, 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 it uh, represents a lot of creative uh, force and creative, like on a weekly basis, creative inspiration uh, for me to get them done. So this is number 20. And, uh, and finally, uh, the, the interview that I, I wanted to happen back in September happened uh, with Joe Bailey Jr. and Steve Mims. Uh, those are filmmakers that made Incendiary, the Willingham case. I have uh, I've mentioned it on the pro- on the program before, so it might not be the first time you've heard of it. It's a fantastic documentary. Um, look at the show notes and uh, go uh, follow the links, and please uh, do some research uh, on this on this case. Uh, it's a fascinating topic. It's a great film, and uh, it's certainly something that that should be should be spread to your friends and family it's it's an important topic uh especially death penalty and um wrongful conviction uh it's definitely something that i'm into fascinated with and i hope that uh you'll find some interesting points in this uh in this talk that uh, we had on uh friday now, uh, it works well as a companion piece. I'm sure that it would work better if you had seen the uh, the movie. So please uh, go over to iTunes and uh, either rent or buy and support uh, the, the film, Incendiary, The Willingham Case. Um, you can also go to their website, which you can see linked in the show notes, and uh, buy it on DVD. I believe if you're with an educational institution, you can get it on loan to show an institution. And uh, yes, it's a, it's a very good uh, film, one of my favorites of 2011, and I really urge you to check it out. Now, before we get into the episode with Joe and Steve, I did want to mention two things. Uh, one uh, is a boo-boo I made. Um, I wanted to put an on-air apology out there. Uh, on episode 18 with J.P. Schmidt, I had mentioned a former guest. Uh, you might know that guest from episode 4. Um, I made a boo-boo by, in passing, adding an S to the end of his name. So, uh, you know, that's, that's a mistake that comes, you know, I, I don't try to, to, uh, 
to dwell on these things, but obviously it's something that upset him and, and his good name and his reputation. So uh, Eric Meyer, his name is Eric Meyer. <laughs> it's not Eric Myers. That's, that's stupid. Who would name their kid Eric Myers? But uh, Eric Meyer is his name. Anyway, in all seriousness, the second thing I wanted to touch on was uh, tonight is the end of an era. If you are a uh, TV watcher, if you consider yourself a well-cultured person, um, there's no doubt in my mind that you have heard of Anthony Bourdain. Um, Anthony Bourdain's No Reservations is ending tonight, and uh, while there are criticisms and qualms that some people have with the program uh, and certainly uh, the host of it. Um, it has been uh, one of the best travel shows that I've ever seen, uh, just in terms of cinematography, music, and of course, uh, the places that he's gone. Now, uh, some people have called him egotistical. Some people have called him uh, vain and, uh, and spiny, uh, crotchety, and uh, all these things that that have gone to kind of shape, you know, this New Yorker mentality that Anthony uh, Bourdain has and this reputation that he has uh, among his viewing audience. Um, he has lots of fans, and I am one of them. And, uh, you know, I just wanted to say that uh, I've enjoyed the show through and through uh, since uh, I believe it was the early 2000s. I don't know exactly what year he started. It might have been 2001, 2002. But uh, every season of the show... And every episode has been, uh, you know, it, it's been marked by great cinematography, often, um, often uh, connected to uh, movies um, and, and music, art that uh, has inspired uh, Bourdain and his uh, crew. Uh, it is uh, one of the most visually beautiful uh, reality sh show slash documentaries uh, that have been on uh, that has been on television, and I I hope that uh, that it continues. I know that he's got a, uh, a another show, um, and he's got other prospects in the future. This is obviously not the end of Anthony Bourdain's career uh, as a uh, as a foodie or as a uh, travel guide. But uh, yeah, I did want to to mark this occasion by saying, um, you know, happy trails, and I hope it's, uh, you know, I hope he uh, he manages to capture even just a, a fraction of the uh, the greatness of uh, No Reservations in his future endeavors. Okay, so with that out of the way. Let's get into uh, Joe Bailey and Steve Mims, uh, an episode that I've been trying to put together since September, like I mentioned earlier. Unfortunately, I got sick uh, around the time that we were originally supposed to record, and then schedule conflicts uh, kept, uh, kept keeping us from, uh, from being able to get together. Um, this was a Skype interview. Uh, if you listen to the episode that I put up on Friday, uh, it was a little impromptu episode with a uh, Alexis Reed and Fernando Madrigal, who helped me out trying to figure out uh, some some picadillos, uh, some quirks uh, about uh, Skype. Um, 
the yeah early in the interview uh we had a couple uh echoing problems a couple audio dropouts but uh luckily and and i mean that luckily it uh it stopped about you know three four five minutes in so uh we were able to get a nice clean interview um as good a quality as as skype will give us uh given that you know all three of us were in different parts of the country uh i believe steve and 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 uh, Joe were in different parts of Texas, um, and I, of course, am in the D.C. region. So I hope you enjoy this today. Again, go see Incendiary, download it, buy it, whatever. You're not going to regret it. It's a fantastic movie. Um, and uh, yeah, and I will uh, talk to you in the outro. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us, Greg. Appreciate it too. Absolutely. Um, before we get into uh, this this great film, this uh, fascinating film that I am really a big fan of, um, I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, both of your your origins. Um, it's important, kind of like to this program. We always talk about um, media and jobs in media, and considering both of you are coming from an academic setting of of filmmaking, also it, I it, I find it interesting to uh, to explore that. So. Uh, Steve, can you tell me a little bit about where you grew up, how you got into film, and uh, what led you down the teaching path? Yeah, you know, I was really lucky. I, when I was a kid, uh, about 12 years old, I had an uncle who owned an, an 8mm movie camera, home movie camera. Right. And on Lark, we made a little stop-motion animated short. And, uh, and then I did three with him, and then... In high school, I bought a Super 8 camera, and that's what people shot with at that time. Right. And so this will tell you a lot about how I spent my high school years. I made like an epic Super 8 film every summer, like all these different genre films. Yeah. And, and I would blackmail my uh, the people in my family into being in them. <laughs> and then I would blackmail them again to come watch them. And uh, when I think about it now, I realize my relatives must have hated coming to our house. But, <laughs> Uh, I did that, and then I uh, got into an undergraduate program, which is really unusual. It was really small, a film program, and it was run by a guy who just graduated from USC, and, uh, and this was in Mississippi, at the University of Southern Mississippi, and I started making short films from my first semester in undergraduate school, and so for about four years, I made movies and worked shooting PR and sports films for the for the university there, and then worked for a while, eventually got into the grad program at the University of Texas, Austin, and got another film degree there. And so from the beginning, uh, I've always made my own films and made client films. Like I do a lot of that, like uh, where I'll work for ad agencies or even on political campaigns and do television spots and short films or whatever. And so I've, I've been able to do that in parallel uh, with teaching. And so I've been teaching for a long time in Austin. And I'm really, really fortunate. And that's how I met Joe. It's like I continue to meet great people 
you know, Austin is sort of like the Venus flytrap for interesting people. Absolutely. And, and, uh, and so I've had a lot of great students, and that's how we met, and that's how, like, right. quite accidentally that the Willingham film sort of became a movie. Right on. Were, were you, when you were, oh, there's a little echo. Hold on a second. <laughs> um, tell me a little bit about, about the teaching. Was it always kind of like you wanted to teach from a, a perspective of, of theory, or were you always hands-on? Oh, I'm really interested in hands-on. Like, I really love cinematography and editing and, and directing and I'm really like a, just a film student permanently. It's like I, I, uh, I love uh, really well-made films. And so that's, that was where that came from initially. And initially it was just like everybody else. It was really kind of just love movies. And then as I went to college and I did pretty well there, uh, these opportunities came up to teach. And so I did it and, uh, and, and at the same time kind of kept doing my own work. How long have you been teaching? Uh, since the Eisenhower administration. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a joke. The, uh, the, uh, since about 80, um, 1989. And has it always been with the university? Uh, I was at the University of Southern Mississippi mm-hmm. uh, for two years, and then I'm at UT after that. I've been with UT on and off since then. Right now I'm teaching two classes there, and I also teach, and this is how I met Joe, like I usually teach once uh, every semester my own class through Austin Filmworks. I see. And it's, a, it's an introductory filmmaking class. I see. So, yeah, I kind of work all the time, but the great thing is none of it really feels like work to me. I, I really, it's, it's an interesting field because it's changed so radically in the time that I've been doing it because I have to teach it and also work with clients it's forced me to kind of keep up with all of it and uh, but I really I, 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 it's fun to me that's great uh, Joe tell me a little bit about where you come from and what led you to uh, to film and uh, and uh, going to the university sure yeah. well I, I guess okay hold, hold on Joe sorry hold on a second we're having a little bit of feedback issue here <laughs> This was the same thing last night. Like it, it, uh, it comes and goes. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. We'll try it again. Yeah, that sounds a lot better. Okay. Um, yeah. So I, I guess I can't, I've always loved movies. You know, like I guess like most of our generation grew up watching Raiders of the Lost Ark, The Empire Strikes Back, and then kind of as I got older uh, in high school, I had a, a film uh, kind of a film appreciation course that really broadened my love for film uh, and kind of the, the guys that were coming to the fore in the 80s and the 90s, uh, that great generation of filmmakers. But I never thought of it as something that I could do, really, right. until probably, you know, well into college. I, was, I, went, to the, I went to the University of Texas uh, for my undergraduate and for law school, and in my undergrad years, I was in an interdisciplinary program called Plan 2, and it's a great program. You get to study a little bit of everything, and you get kind of the best of all the great professors the university has to offer in so many different fields, but I really, I took another film course then and really loved it. It was about Irish film, and I'd always, my, my thesis in college was about jazz music, and I, I really liked writing about music. I ended up publishing an article with the journal Texas Music History, but 
I was always a little bit frustrated by the lack of immediacy in writing. You know, when you're writing about something like music that's that's so uh, sensory, it's it's hard. You have to trust the reader to go out there and listen to the music. You know, to really know exactly what you mean or what you're talking about. And Phil kind of that was right when I started to see lots of of great films being made about music with with this more inexpensive uh, digital cameras that were available to people. You know, lots of great right. uh, inspirational films. I started to see you know uh, early on in that era, you know, right around the mid-early part of the first decade of 2000s. But anyway, so I, I started thinking, you know, I, what if I tried, rather than writing about music, you know, making uh, motion pictures where you add a new dimension to music and you and you supplement that with something new. Right. Uh, it seemed like I was almost missing the boat a little bit writing about music. So I started making a documentary, a music documentary, and was about a year and a half into uh, working on it when my wife really encouraged, we weren't married at the time, but she really encouraged me to take Steve's class because I never had any formal training in film. I picked up a lot of knowledge along the way, but never really learned from a master or anything like that. So right. I really uh, had heard great things about Steve's course, and, and I, I was still a postdoctoral fellow at the law school. So, you know, through all this, I was actually going to law school, you know, trying to, wow. uh, trying to be responsible, I guess. <laughs> uh, all the while, you know, writing about music, doing a lot of research about music, starting to work on this film and found myself in Steve's class. And it was probably like the third week of class, I want to say. And, uh, uh, I think, uh, the, the you know we got into a conversation after class. I like to talk to Steve after class. He's you know funny guy and uh, lots of insight and lots of humor. And so we, we got to talking about I think there's an execution coming up and and uh, it was some sort of newsworthy thing. And right. we got into this conversation about what what is the thought process of a governor? You know when he when he's facing an execution, how much thought goes into the review of that case and. Steve had just finished reading the New Yorker piece that David Grant had written that had been published a couple of weeks before and right. uh, suggested that I check it out, you know, knowing that I, uh, you know, was still, I was a postdoctoral fellow at the law school at the time, so I still had a foot in law. And, right. Uh, and so we got to talking about it and, uh, and I ended up writing Steve and said, you know, this is really fascinating. There's so many uh, layers to this story and so many facets of it that it, it illustrate so many complex things about our society, about how, you know, the law and science and politics interface. And, uh, and it's a great mystery. And, yeah. and, uh, and so I was like, you know, somebody ought to make a film. Right. About story. What was his rea What was Steve's reaction to that? My, my reaction was, yes, yeah, somebody should do it, but that's a lot of work. Right. And, uh, he, he wrote me this email where he proposed that. And I, Wrote him back, and I, the first part of the email was like, "Well, you know, this is it takes a long time. It's an open-ended thing." But by the time I got to the bottom, it's like, "Well, we should just go ahead and do it," um, because it was such such a terrific story, and uh, some of the protagonists in the film live in Austin or close to Austin, right? <clears throat> and so we just thought, "Well, yes, we can." We had our own gear. We had time to devote to it. 
And so why not just go ahead and piecemeal start collecting the material and then see if a movie is there, like see if you can make it into a movie. Right. It starts off as kind of a complex, uh, actually a simple kind of straightforward uh, movie about the exploration of the uh, death penalty case surrounding uh, Cameron Todd Willingham. But it kind of goes into this kind of uh, down the rabbit hole type journey into kind of this this thing full of political intrigue and awkwardness and, and the cover-up of the exoneration and stuff like that. It's pretty interesting. That's, I, and, and we couldn't, the, the funny thing about that is I think that we saw all of those facets of it, but we kind of thought that it was uh, like, you know, like being in a, in a morgue, you know, pulling out this, right. this, this body and examining it and looking at this case from a very uh, meticulous, you know, perspective about looking at something that had already occurred and, and it ended up kind of flaring just as we started working on it just right. out, out of coincidence and the film became a contemporary piece covering the struggle over the case and the, and the reputation of, of Willingham and and you know that added a different dimension to it when it first started like the origin of it for you being that New Yorker piece was it going to be a film just exploring the Willingham case? It, you obviously didn't have the uh, the scope of looking at Rick Perry and uh, the things that were going on with with uh, that uh, exoneration trial afterwards and uh, John Bradley and and the FSC. Right? It started simply as an exploration of Willingham's case. Yeah, I think that initially we probably thought that if we put together a compelling you know, visual version of what Grand wrote, that that would be a movie in itself. And then we got really lucky because uh, Perry, uh, you know, a couple things really made the film totally different. One is Perry putting John Bradley in there right when we started shooting uh, as the uh, head of the Forensic Science Commission. And then us going to that meeting where John Bradley kicked us out uh, was terrific because, you know, John Bradley was a gift to the movie because he was such a uh, unlikable oh, yeah. for us. Um, uh, uh, such an, well, let me be more politically ex- correct about that. He, he's such an interesting character. Right. And, um, and such a polarizing character. It's like we never, that guy wasn't in Grant's piece. Uh, so all of a sudden we're in contact with him and the dynamic that we witnessed in terms of his behavior is a little bit like and one of our favorite documentaries is the King of Kong. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, the guy who is the uh, magnate, these, uh, what's his name? Billy. Um, I can't think of his name. Right. But uh, like that film, they, they were so lucky that they had somebody who behaved on camera in a way that you would never think people would do. Right. And Bradley really provided that for us. Um, and he also provoked uh, uh, Barry Sheck and a lot of other people to behavior that they probably would not have exhibited had not Bradley been the kind of a person that he was, the way he sort of tried to steamroll all those people. Absolutely. Yeah, and, you can see the antagonism so that, in that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was very real. I mean, we sat through hours and hours of those meetings, and uh, there was a real, literally, not, not a figurative agenda, but a real, literal, written-out agenda that he had that was really supposed to push the Willingham thing away. 
and, and not really make it a big thing for discussion. And it turned into a very dynamic thing that we're right in the middle of. And I would say the other two things that made the film different from the grand story is uh, that we, Joe was able to get us the interview with um, Willingham's defense attorney. Oh, right on. And, um, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on his name right now. It's, David uh, Martin. David Martin. Yeah. And uh, in that interview that we got with him, that actually Joe's wife conducted the inter- most of the questions for us uh, on that really changed the movie because he, in the, in the final construct of the film, the defense attorney becomes the voice of the prosecution in a way that is totally weird. And people are always shocked by that, as sure. we were. Sure. And then the last thing is that exoneration trial that we did not see coming. And then when it came, you know, we were editing the film as we shot it. And by the time that exoneration hearing happened, we had a rough cut of the whole movie. And then all of a sudden, we were given the third act because oh, yeah. it, it, it was like a courtroom drama where all the people that you already know are now called to the stand to give testimony. Right. And so it was a real gift. And so I'll have one fourth thing, and that is we had always wanted to get Willingham's wife on camera. We'd never been able to get her. And then all of a sudden, because of a political campaign, she became part of a political set piece that happened just a few weeks before the governor's election in November of that year. Right. And uh, so all these things kind of unfold in a way that uh, serendipitously, you know, we were in production and we were able to, again. So before I accuse myself of bad interviewing and, and we get any further into this, I, I wanted to, for, for people who do not know, could you tell uh, Joe or Steve, could you tell the listeners who aren't familiar with the case what was happening with Cameron Todd Willingham and, and what, what was the result? Uh, yeah, sure. So, so Cameron Todd Willingham uh, was convicted of arson murder in, in 1991 his house uh, burned down and his three daughters, very young daughters, I guess they were infants and then a, a two and a half, almost three-year-old daughter uh, died in the fire and he escaped the fire. And the investigators at the time thought that they found evidence that pointed toward arson. And so he was, he was arrested, he was tried and convicted uh, for the case and in 2004, he was executed, um, and just before his execution, about a month before, uh, Dr. Gerald Hurst, who lives here in Austin, he was the first guy that we interviewed for the film, actually, right. um, submitted a report to the <laughs> and to the Attorney General in Texas, um, basically deconstructing the case and saying that all of the forensic evidence that used against Willingham are used to... to say that there was an arson fire, that it was intentionally set, was all bogus and had no basis in science. And the governor's office and the AG, you know, the the governor of Texas has power to grant a 30-day stay of execution. So they were asking Governor Perry to put this thing aside for 30 days, let let the experts look at it, decide whether this is valid and that this all this other this evidence has no no merit. And then decide what to do with it. Um, they decided to go ahead with the execution, and he was executed. And so, it wasn't really until the Texas Forensic Science Commission was set up 
by the, the Texas legislature to make improvements in, in forensic science, and they they established this commission to go back and look at cases where there might have been errors and and try to make sense of them and try to make improvements going forward. What spurned that though? Was it Willingham's case or was there an internal memo? Was that what was the what spurned them to want to look into this and improve it? Well the, the impetus for the commission being created were some really big forensic errors that were going on in Houston. There was a crime lab scandal in Dallas there was a crime lab scandal a lot of DNA uh, evidence was, you know, not evaluated properly and, and not stored properly. And so that was meant to address that. The Willingham uh, complaint was the first complaint submitted to the Texas Forensic Science Commission. And the commission accepted it and decided that they had the jurisdiction to go for it. Uh, and so that... That was the first, you know, the first case they took on, and, and they were about, uh, I want to say, uh, several years into the review uh, when the they were about to issue their first uh, testimony. The, the they hired a fire scientist, Craig Byler, and uh, just before he was going to issue his official review of the case. Uh, the governor removed the chairman of the commission, removed uh, two other members of the commission, right. and that's where we picked up just serendipitously, like we were, like Steve was saying, we we happened to start filming just as that happened, and that was really controversial because right. uh, you know that was the state the state had hired this man to review the evidence and and uh, give his professional opinion, and you know it, it was effectively derailed by the governor. Right. That first part of the of the movie, before you move into uh, what happens with Gov- Governor Perry and the FSC uh, meetings, uh, is, is such a – even though it's very much a, a, a fact-after-fact uh, laundry list of what was going on with, with uh, Willingham's case and this kind of art versus science of arson investigation and, and kind of debunking the uh, ability of accurate arson investigation to diagnose based on these aspects like crazed glass – um, the the things of where the uh, the uh, um, distillate or the uh, you know the wherever they said that he had put uh, gasoline in the home all these little aspects uh, are really tension filled it's very it's very engaging and um, you bring in these real life characters that happen to be just in and of themselves engaging. And I'm, of course, talking about uh, people like Gerald Hurst and John Lentini. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how you got in contact with Gerald Hurst and how you got him involved in the film? Because he's a fascinating character. I'm sorry. Yeah, Gerald lives here in Austin. And at the the very beginning, we had uh, another... uh, producer on the film, a guy named uh, Reed Nelson, and Reed called him up, and uh, he is a very uh, open guy, like he does, he's done a lot of press over the years, and so that's how we got to meet him, and that's how we get to spend, you know, an afternoon with him uh, doing the interview, and then Lentini was sort of found the same way, Lentini happened to be in San Antonio, not too much longer after that, he was then in San Antonio for a conference, 
for fire investigation or something. And we went down there and interviewed him in a in a motel room. Um, but thank you for that compliment about the beginning because that you know, we always believe that you know literally part of the title of the film is the Willingham case. Right. And in order to make a legitimate case, we felt like the fire signs and the real facts you, that we had to address all those and really kind of take that off the table as uh, something that you could manipulate later and just like spell it out for people so that you'd know like, look, this is really what the science says. This is what they found and not make it ambiguous at all so that uh, you couldn't have politicians or anybody else come back and like make kind of broad accusations about it, which they do, which is terrific in the movie too because that you have other, obviously there are people who speak in the film that don't know what they're talking about or, or that they've never had it presented to them in a cogent way so that they realize how ludicrous some of the things that they say are. Um, so, But it was a challenge you know, in the movie and editorially to make that first part compelling right. and keep it moving so that people just didn't turn tune out of the movie and think like, oh, this is too dense. Right. And so it's nice to hear you say that. And that's always the big, like I, I tell Joe this all the time. I, we've seen the film many times and I'll, I'll watch it one time and, and hate it just because, you know, having edited it for so long. And then I'll see it again and go like, that's a terrific film. Right. The last time I saw it, I thought that's a great film. And, um, I think that, you know, like with any film, it takes a while to have some distance from it to know if it really works or not. Right. But, you know, part of what makes that little sequence work so well is the music. Uh, we, we have a guy here in town, Graham Reynolds, who's a composer, and he did a terrific job on the score of that film. Absolutely. And it's kind of creepy. It's um, a little sinister, and it really helps keep all that moving. Absolutely. That whole part there, um, I have to say... Um, for some people that have seen it that I've read uh, talking about how kind of dry um, being just told facts is, I felt that it was incredibly engaging, um, especially when you have someone like uh, Lentini or Hearst talking about it who immediately give off a, a feeling of, of not expert, not just expertise, but they're obviously people that have no vested political interest in it. They're, they are men that care about the, the facts, about the forensic science. And I got to say, one of my favorite parts of the movie later on, and I'm sure you've heard this uh, from several people, is kind of this not not knowing completely who Gerald Hurst is until that exoneration trial when he mentions his history. And it's kind of eye-opening that this man who was simply given a lower third of, uh, of chemistry or a chemist earlier in the movie has this much deeper history and involvement in arson, incendiaries, developing napalm for the military during the Vietnam. It was, it's an incredibly fascinating turn, I have to say. So that's another, another thing that I thought was great about the film. Yeah, you know, we were so thrilled that he, when he took the stand and they had to ask him about his background, that he went into all that because, you know, the, we don't have a narrator for the film. Sure. So we had to find a way to put all the material in there organically so that it would 
come out, you know, as it made sense in the story. And it is a little treat when you get to that and you hear him say that he worked on incendiaries in Napalm. And, mm-hmm. and uh, there's another, there's a deeper story with Gerald Hurst that uh, maybe we should make, but uh, he is quite a complex character. And, and his tenure in the defense industry, I think, is something that he has deep uh, feelings about. And I think that's part of the of his uh, pro bono work now, right. helping people. Right. Because, uh, uh, you know, he, like a lot of people who lived through the Vietnam War, he's directly or indirectly um, linked to a lot of terrible stuff that sure. happened. Sure. Well, the way it happens in all wars, I'm not picking on him, but right. it's like you can see where uh, it's, it, really, it makes, it, in, in an instant, it makes him really more fascinating and credible, you know, because yeah. it's like this. I, I love it when the judge asks him how many years he's been working. He says, 50 years. And the judge says, 5 He says, 5 It's like, wow, maybe you do know what you're talking about. Right. I also like, you know, he, he mentions this uh, in there, and I, this was another moment that that added credibility to, uh, to what he was talking about, is simply his ability to admit uh, that, that, of course, he and, and people like Lentini and Baylor uh, are, are flawed human beings. They don't know everything. And the difference between them and other arson investigator, investigators or arson experts has been their ability, especially as in interviews and in media, that they can admit that there are shortcomings of everything that they know. They know a lot, but they're not willing to say that the buck stops here. You know, there's always something more to learn or something more to investigate. Yeah, you know, I mean that that sort of idea. It's I mean that's the essence of science, right? It's right. Uh, you're always improving and refining it, and it's it's completely open. That's the other thing about science is that the whole basis of it is that you publish your work, you lay out everything that you can, and you let other people have at it, and they can criticize you, and you might come off looking like an idiot eventually, but it's for the betterment of mankind on the whole, and everybody advances. Uh, the whole of society for it. And I think that for me, that's what was so fascinating about this story is that, you know, I had to ask myself on finishing the grand piece and on making our film, uh, you know, what, what do I value? And what, when I look at a, a situation like this, where there's no way that I can know everything about it, um, do, are rules important? I think that, you know, are we a nation of laws or are we a nation that convicts people by rumor and by hunch? And I think that I th- you look at a lot of cases um, in law school or, you know, in any, if you follow uh, wrongful convictions, where you see this, where people are convicted on really no more than a hunch and completely circumstantial evidence. And later we found through science that they were actually innocent. And I think that, uh, our laws are designed to combat that that problem, you know, and, right. and we're supposed to prove up that these things, you know, we're supposed to prove up arson before we ask who did it. Sure. Um, but for me, that was a really important distinction looking at it. I was like, well, it, it's, it is really powerful if, if we can show, if we know that there isn't enough evidence for arson. Right. Doesn't that, that's the first step in, in evaluating this case. The and, doubt, yeah. All the rest of it wraps it up into a, an interesting mystery, an interesting story, 
But I think making a film that gives that its due weight is what we were trying to do to say, look, this is, you know, we were posed the question after the first screening, what if he was guilty? And, and, uh, and I said, you know, I, I, frankly, the way we made the film, I'd still be comfortable with that because I think that we tried to give the appropriate time and attention to that possibility, but to also give the full weight to the fact that we never proved up arson. Right. And, um, you know, the way that the laws work in, in this country, you're, you're supposed to, to have some uh, recourse for that. Sure. If That's there's it. reasonable doubt. Right. And, well, you know, really, if there was a crime to begin with, that this was an arson fire. And I think that, um, anyway, that, that was really interesting for us to develop that, to see, you know, what the law is, how do these investigators work in the field, um, and then pull out everything that we could that was interesting about this case. But like you're saying, the characters are what make it a great film. Absolutely. And, and I think that we were really fortunate to find people like like Gerald Hurst, like John Lentini, like David Martin, yeah. um, Barry Sheck, John Bradley. I think that, you know, you love, I loved hearing from, I, I still hear from friends who, you know, old high school buddies who just, you know, rented it on iTunes the other day. And people that I never thought would have more than a passing interest in a movie like that, and, and they end up loving it, and they, right. and they really love the characters. You know, they'll, they'll always ask me about Gerald Hurst, and uh, my friend Joe, uh, a friend of mine from high school the other day, was telling me, you know, he's like, when, when the first time that Jerry Hurst appears on screen, you're like, who in the hell is this guy? <laughs> this yeah. great bearded man. Yeah. yeah. But then by, by, by the, like you said, when that... Throughout the film, you're you're given more and more insight into into his genius, yeah. through the the incredible knowledge that he has, um, and I think, and then the depth of his character too that you, that you mentioned. And I think that's all great films that you know that we aspire toward. You know, really let you live with people in, in, in an intimate way that that have interesting knowledge that to impart or that have character and have humor and, and all of those things were present in, in those characters. Right. Uh, you know, you mentioned, uh, David Martin and, and, uh, where I, where I find, you know, Gerald Hurst, uh, like, like you've said, uh, this, this complicated, uh, genius man. Uh, on the other hand, I, I also see, uh, a character like David Martin, which we, we mentioned is kind of a, a complex thing that you often don't see in narrative, much less documentary, uh, TV shows and movies is a, a person who who was supposed to be on the the defense side, supposed to be defending Willingham, but has been one of the most outspoken uh, about his steadfast belief in Willingham's guilt. And he's he's fascinating in and of himself. Uh, yeah, we're, so we could not believe it. Uh, that interview, even as it was happening, I think we were so shocked by his uh, complete representation of what happened really sent from the perspective of the prosecution right. rather than the defense. And we were lucky. I mean, he if you go back and Google him, you can find all kinds of television performances or appearances he did on CNN <laughs> about this. And he, and he cultivated, I mean, I would say, uh, looking at it, it appears that he cultivated a, a kind of... Uh, Matlock kind of country yeah. uh, vibe, where yeah. he's just a uh, 
a normal person dealing with an abnormal situation in a, right. with real common sense. And I think that he was able to do that in a lot of interviews. But I think that we were lucky because, and we were lucky he gave us so much time. And we, we spent a lot of time with him uh, on that interview. And because Alice, Joe's wife, uh, who's a uh, prosecutor in Travis County, um, did the question, uh, most of the interviews, Joe and I both asked questions also, but she did the right. um, did most of them. She really was able to bird dog him a little bit in a very polite way to get him to really define what the defense was and needle out of him things that had been glossed over before. Right. And so, yeah, you can't make a guy like that up. He's just um, a real a real character, and we knew, that, you know, we were driving away from there that we had some material that had to go into the movie, and, uh, you know, if we had not have gotten him, it would have been a much um, less interesting film. Was he straightened to the point about this attorney-client privilege that ends the movie? Did he ever expound on that, or did he just leave it at that? Yeah, he pretty much, he left it there, and I, and I didn't want to prod him for because you basically are, are treading on very thin ice ethically as a lawyer. Right. Um, and that's, you know, a lot of people watch that film and watch that, that scene and and say that he does cross the line and, and that's unethical of him, you know, and it's actually professionally unethical. You right. can have serious ramifications for your standing with the bar. But, uh, you know, it's up for debate. But I think that as far as... Uh, the State Bar of Texas is concerned, but I think a lot of people are really either troubled or it, it either, you know, it, it makes you reevaluate the entire film at the, in the last frame. Right. And it's, it's also really fascinating. So uh, I'll use my words. I know you, you probably uh, wouldn't or shouldn't call him this, but John Bradley seems to be the perfect bad guy for this movie. Um, he kind of creates. Uh, like well, like we've mentioned, uh, this antagonism towards committee members, even on the FSC, uh, the media. Um, he's just, uh, you know, every every moment in the movie that John Bradley's in, he's uh, got a certain level of, of arrogance. And as a real person, uh, uh, fine. You know, he's uh, he might be power tripping. He might be, you know, uh, very c- control-oriented. But in the movie, uh, as, as a person that's supposed to be running a, a, a committee of, uh, of people that's supposed to be exploring the, the possibility of exoneration and, and, uh, of the, uh, of the fire investigated the fire uh, marshal's office and, uh, what, how they utilize, uh, manuals and training. Uh, he just seems like the, the perfect villain. Um, just like you said with, uh, with, uh, Billy from, uh, King of Kong. Yeah, Billy Mitchell. That's what it was. Right? Billy Mitchell, yes. Billy Mitchell, yeah. Yeah, no, he—he's really, uh, and and I will say that I think there are many things that we didn't use in the film where he behaved much worse, <laughs> and it just wasn't germane, or it wasn't, it didn't, it, it didn't uh, fit in the narrative. But it, yeah, it was really, uh, it was like uh, kind of a middle school, high school dynamic. <laughs> almost a playground thing. but but yeah he, the, the curious thing about him as well is that in the prosecuting community he was really highly regarded in Texas for a while uh, he was prosecutor of the year that year uh, 
that's depicted in the film for, I suppose, for his handling of, of the Willingham case. Wow. But, you know, he was defeated in uh, the Republican primary just recently right. uh, for his refusal to test or fighting against the testing of a DNA uh, evidence that ultimately exonerated Michael Morton. Well, and and he caught a lot of flack for his handling of the Willingham case as well from from people on both sides of the aisle in the in the Texas Senate. So, uh, yeah, I mean he's a, he's a really a lightning rod for people. You know, without without speculating too much, what do you think that that is? Is that particularly just a a political stance? What do you think his his motives are for being so difficult or standing up to? to to just progressiveness progression in in the uh in the way the fc uh, the fsc was operating the things that they were reviewing i think you know i think it's just his his personality i think that you know initially i know i took it sort of personally he was such a so kind of rude to us and then i as we watched that thing unfold the, the events unfold with the forensic science commission I mean, I came to see that he wasn't he wasn't uh, focusing on us. Like he, he treated everybody the way he treated us. Right. He, even his peers, the people who were supposed to be his peers, and he paid a price for that. He paid a price for that, as Joe mentioned, uh, with the legislature because he was a, he was rude to uh, people in hearings, right. uh, and as you said, arrogant. And so, I don't think. It's really strange. I don't think he really discriminates. I think that that's just how he um, operates or how he comes off. I mean, that's how – I mean, I don't want to say how he is, but I think that that's how people perceive him. Right. And I think that that – he's reaped, um, you know, what he has sown in that regard with a lot of – in a lot of situations, including his reelection. Right. I look I look at this – the um – the particular. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. What'd you say? Oh, I was saying, you know, as far as answering your question, I mean, if your question was more about uh, intellectual stance or and, and philosophy and less about character, I think that he definitely has professionally uh, been a mouthpiece for the idea that prosecutors ought to play hardball right. and that they ought to, you know, make really strong plea agreements with defendants where they agree of evidence, for instance. Right. Things that you know other prosecutors might find borderline unethical, uh, he is advocated for very openly um, in the professional community. I, the only reason I know that is just knowing knowing people in the legal community here in town and in, in, in Austin, and, uh, and my wife, you know, is a, is a prosecutor. I think that it's not a, a show. I mean, I think for a long time he really believed in guarding the idea of, of justice and the idea of, of the prosecutor and and. I think that, you know, hopefully he might have, he seems to have said that he's seen the light in, in, in recent interviews uh, and, and softened his posture and, and become more open to the idea that we make mistakes that need to be corrected. Sure. But, but yeah, his posture in the film and, and, and for most of his career, all of his career has been very hard line and very unapologetic. And I think that, you know, if you want to be an apologist to that, I think that being a prosecutor, you do see many, many cases where you can't prove it up, and you know the person's guilty. Um, and so, I, you know, I think there's a little bit of a human element there, but 
there are you know pretty heinous consequences when you do convict someone who is innocent. Absolutely. Um, also, another element that came into um, the the sequences with John Bradley. Uh, were the members of the innocent pro- the Innocence Project, uh, particularly Barry Shank and uh, Stephen Saloom, right? Um, that one moment where Barry Shank is having a uh, a little bit of butting heads with uh, John Bradley, um, I wasn't completely clear on what the uh, what Bradley had said about Shank. Uh, had he been open about uh, uh, openly like uh, putting him down, putting down what the, uh, what his organization was doing? Yeah, you know, he, he, ref- he referred to Barry Shack and the Innocence Project re- repeatedly as the New York lawyers, you know, intermeddlers basically that, right. that were coming down here and, and uh, <laughs> making a mess and, and getting in the way of things. When in fact, you know, the Innocence Project was the complainant for that case, and they were an involved party. They were the ones that brought this complaint to the Forensic Science Commission. So they were, you know, they were there for a reason. They were the ones that were. were what, what was their their major impetus? Were they going after the uh, the training uh, with the um, the fire marshal's office? Essentially, they were saying, "Look, we have these two cases." Uh, in two thousand four, Ernest Willis was exonerated uh, by the state for an arson murder case. Uh, the evidence is pretty much a carbon copy of the Willingham case. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the same year, Todd Willingham was executed. And so the thrust of the Innocence Project's complaint is how do you have these two cases where the evidence is so similar and you have these dramatically different outcomes where one man's executed, one man walks free. And, I mean, the practical explanation of that is that there was a pro bono a lawyer that, that worked tirelessly over a course of, you know, five, ten years to, to work on Willis's case. And Willingham's case didn't really catch anyone's attention until uh, just before and just after he was executed. So, right. Um, so, but yeah, they, you know, they were the complainants. So that's why they were there. And, and but Bradley was trying to imply that, you know, that they didn't have any, <laughs> they didn't have any right. And, was even a little more dismissive, right? You know, he was calling them out as New York lawyers. And right. There's a lot of baggage to that term. Right. I, uh, you know, speaking of the time that it came out, um, I, I do remember uh, Governor Rick Perry having a lot of um, people who see people seeing this uh, when I saw it in D.C. When I saw it at uh, E Street Cinema. It was it was fascinating because I don't think people exactly expected that level of uh, of politics or that level to enter into the story. And of course, we you know we talked about how he uh, he got rid of three members of the FSC um, and kind of spurned the second half of the movie. But um, as far as Rick Perry was involved in the in the movie, one of my favorite scenes, and I remember uh, seeing an interview with with you, Joe, talking about how you like awkward comedy. Um, that gotcha interview with Evan Smith, um, where he mentions Tim Cole to Rick Perry and throws him off. It, it's 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 hilarious. It's so funny. Yeah, I mean, you know, Rick Perry is a very expressive guy. He's got that. You know, he's got these kind of <laughs> deer in a headlight. <laughs> that scene, um, 
yeah, you know, talk about and then there's another another strong character. I think that you, he's definitely a, a type that that uh, central casting couldn't, couldn't <laughs> a better person for. You know, it, that that always gets a big laugh. And if you think about the timing of the film <clears throat> when it came out, when it premiered in the festivals, and then when we had our theatrical run, <clears throat> it coincided with Rick Perry running for president. Right. And I think before he ran for president, you'd look at that film and go, like, I can't believe he said that. And then when he started talking, when he ran for president, it was like, oh, we just saw the tip of the iceberg. Right. This guy has a million of them. Absolutely. And uh, it was really kind of rewarding to us to, like, to be the first people to uh, uh, exhibit that early on. The last of the people that uh, that I wanted to just pick your brain about was uh, was Stacy Willingham's wife. Um, you did mention how she uh, showed up uh, it coinciding with the exoneration trial. Uh, was that completely a political move uh, from the Ashcroft group, uh, Johnny Sutton, the the lawyer from the Ashcroft group? Do you feel that it was completely a political uh, uh, move, or do you think that? You know, this is is the is the timing and the context of it suspect, or is it uh, is it uh, she just she finally had to come forward and get it off her off her chest? Well, yeah, I mean, in terms of the film, we try to just lay it out, let it speak on its own terms, and uh, and you know, I think we st- we stuck to that, and we probably could have been more editorial about it, but we tried to to leave it alone and let it breathe. Right. But as far as our personal feelings, I don't know. I mean, Steve, do you want to? talk about that or yeah i think i think there's no way it, it was a political event it was it was a press conference called by or uh, johnny Sutton of the ashcroft group uh and this is a lady who um uh, it's just a normal person so how she came to be represented by the ashcroft group it's a powerhouse law firm mm-hmm. and how she came to decide to make a public appearance in that proximity, I'd have to look at the calendar, but it had, it was, I think, three weeks before the final election uh, for uh, the governor. Right. Uh, so the fact that it fell when it did, simultaneous to the exoneration hearing, which was an issue, like it was, it was a, a big issue publicly about Willingham, about how he was executed, and probably, and you know, about how we now know that there wasn't evidence to. Uh, beyond reasonable doubt that should that should happen. So the fact that they, they you know they sent out a press release. They that's why all the media was there. They were there to record her statement. Uh, the way that Johnny Sutton set it up, where there would be no follow up questions for her, and then he sort of answered uh, questions by not really answering questions afterwards. Mm-hmm. It was there to do what they achieved, and this is this is a real genius of that. Uh, if you go back and look at what showed up on the evening news after their press conference. You know, the evening news is famous for or infamous for very, very short television stories. Right. And so what happens is the, you know, the, uh, the, uh, anchorman says, you know, and there was a big development in the Willingham case today. His wife said that he, he confessed to her. And then they show you the clip where she says, you told me he did it, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And that's pretty much the end of the story. And, that you know, you see that Perry in in our film. It's great because Perry talking uh, to Evan Smith says, you know, she came out uh, just two weeks ago or last week right. 
and said he did it. Well, it's just a it's a way to deal with the problem. I think like if you're in a if you're on a campaign and you have a whiteboard and it's filled with issues that you have to come up with a strategy to solve. That's I'm not saying that's what they did, but that's definitely one way to solve it. Right. Is to go ahead and for the casual viewer turn on the television and see this guy's wife say that. Well, you know, case closed for a lot of people. Right. Um, it is. I think that you know a lot of people like to go back and look over the history of, of her posture on the case, and she, you know, at trial she defended him and right. was adamant that he couldn't have done that, and and she defended him up through you know David Grant's investigation, and and it wasn't until that kind of became a real issue that that we started to hear that she, you know, I guess she said that when. At the time of, of his execution, she had had a chance to review all the evidence and started to suspect his guilt somewhere before then. And then she made mention that he expressed some guilt or something, you know, that he watched them burn and all that. And um, so, yeah, it's, I don't know, it's definitely uh, <laughs> not the most. Uh, I, I, the, the quote I read from the, the original prosecutor is that, you know, she, he said she's changed her mind so many times he wouldn't put any stock in what she has to say at all. But right. I don't know. That's, she's been in a really, uh, it's hard to, to get yourself into her perspective. I mean, right. she has lost uh, her friend, so. It, uh, it is something you bring up in, in the movie. Um, uh, I forget who said it, but the the idea that you know being cold and um and distant uh with the exploring the science and the facts of the case um of course the movie's fantastic but the movie does a job of becoming scientific and distant so the question of emotion that's kind of tied into it the same with kind of movies like dear zachary and and uh and paradise lost that the emotion there is not as prevalent in in incendiary in the movie so maybe there's uh, less understanding to the emotional perspective of where she's coming from and other people in the family. Yeah, I mean, I think that if, if we had really, if we had gotten what we wanted and, and, and been able to sit down with her and right. really and really talk to her, you know, we, we would have wanted to probably include more of that kind of content. And the same goes, you know, we probably would have included more of that kind of content from other survivors right. of the family. But I think that in the end, just like the way that David Martin ended up speaking for the prosecution, what we couldn't get really did shape the film. And, and I think it became a conscious decision to deal with science first, but that evolved from what we were able to, to get. And, you know, the original prosecutor wouldn't, wouldn't meet with us. The, the fire marshal's office wouldn't go on the record in the film beyond the, their posture with the Forensic Science Commission. So... It, we worked with what we had, and I think the the beautiful thing about that is, as a citizen, when you read about these cases, a lot of times what you have are, is, is the emotional side, and the only thing that's reported is these circumstantial parts of the case. And so, what we try to do is is to really get in more depth and, and reveal the scientific aspects of it, the legal aspects of it, and 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 do that um, because they're interesting right. beyond just as a service or as something that's important. I think that 
learning those things for Steve and for me was really was really fascinating as well. Right. Um, I do want to pick your brains from a from a philosophical standpoint for a second, since we are talking about a uh, a controversial subject. Um, you're both in Texas, and it's widely known that Texas is is a, uh, or at least it has the reputation of being uh, harsh on uh, convic- convictions and harsh sentences, and particularly when it comes to the death penalty. Um, are you both strong believers in uh, abolishing the death penalty, or are you more uh, believers in making airtight? cases based on forensic evidence and things like confessions before the death penalty is handled handed out. Steve, do you want to go on Yes, first? Steve. See, you... I'll say this. I think that when we came into it, I think that issue for me is pretty far removed for, as it is for a lot of people. Right. I mean, it's more like a, an intellectual argument that really doesn't have a lot to do with your everyday life. Right. And so it's it's like abortion in that way. It's like it's something you know about, you know about all the issues, but I think that uh, unless you're dealing with it, it's not really the primary thing that you concern yourself with. I think that's where I was when I came into the film. And I think that uh, learning about the story uh, helped me kind of refine what I think about it. And I think then I was very impressed with Mark White there's a former governor in Texas who makes a really compelling close of the film yes. by talking about the fact that he he uh, he was a governor, he executed people, but he did it with real due diligence where they, uh, it, they didn't look at an executive summary that some lawyer put together right. uh, and then go like, okay, execute the guy, that they really fretted over it. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sort of of two minds about it now. I, I really appreciate his approach to that because I think that if you are going to have the death penalty, as he says in the movie, it should be very rare. Yes. And it should only be used, you know, when it's clearly, uh, the, clearly the person deserves to have that punishment. Um, however, that said, I really think in my view is really changed, and that is I don't, I don't believe in the death penalty anymore. Right. I think that... Uh, it's clear that it's a terrible system. It's very expensive. Uh, I mean, you can look at it just cold economic terms. It costs a lot to have to have these things come up over and over and over again. Right. And I think that, you see, from that perspective, you can look at it that way. But then I think that, um, you know, there are no wealthy people who get executed in this country. They all wind up being people like Willingham who um, – May, may or may not have been guilty, but who had very poor representation because nobody could afford it. Yeah. And um, so you get down, you get to looking at it that way, and it seems really kind of uh, like a system that doesn't doesn't work. So that's a real change for me. But I think that uh, uh, that's where I come down on it now. Right, Joe. What do you think about it? Yeah, I, I mean, I it's pretty much a direct. Uh, Echo of what Steve just said. I mean, when yeah. I came when I came into it, I think I was pretty hands off about the issue. I um, I always thought that, like in my heart of hearts, if I were to really live what I believe, you know, I mean, I, I definitely come from like an Episcopalian Christian upbringing, and I know that as far as my religion is concerned, that I shouldn't believe in the death penalty. It seems wrong. It doesn't seem appropriate. Right. But I think, you know, having grown up watching Dirty Harry as well, yeah. 
have a kind of an idealized view of, of justice where you have this, you know, the, <laughs> the uh, tough, uh, tough guy bringing down the law uh, like a hammer and dispensing justice like that. But I think that when I really looked at things clearly and evaluated it in a new light, having worked on this over the course of years, and, and you know, when we were releasing the film, I think I even still was, was very... I think I, I really wanted the film to stand on its own two feet and not be manipulated and not be a mouthpiece for any sort of agenda. And I think that that might have colored my my view on the death penalty. But having enough removed from the film, too, I think. Now, I, I think, yeah, I, I have to agree with Steve. I don't, I don't think that it's good policy. And I think that um, that's definitely an evolved view. I, I can see why emotionally we, we would want to have it. And I can, see, I, can, I can see why people are of the opinion that they, it should be available. Um, so, I think, yeah, I think that... I, it's a complex answer, but, sure. uh, you know, if, if, if I could change things myself, I probably would do away with it. But I think that, um, I'm not, I'm not uh, vociferous about it. I, I don't, I'm not dismissive of people who, who believe in it. Um, I, I, I definitely read cases where I think, wow, if anybody is deserving of it, this case is right. 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 But I think, uh, Philosophically, yeah, I, I don't think I, and, and, and policy-wise, I don't think that I can really stand behind it. Right. It's a fascinating topic. It's something that that I've been interested in most of my life, and uh, <clears throat> I spent I spent quite a bit of time in in high school and college, um, kind of trying to figure out how I felt about that issue and, and abortion and, and gun rights, especially um, coming from. A, a conservative uh, background and kind of a, as I grew older becoming more liberal especially in the part of the country that I am uh, and and of course the the career that I've decided to go into with film uh, obviously most of my friends and my my peers are, are liberal where as my my father and my family are very conservative so it was something that particular in particular death penalty was something that I uh, have explored uh, throughout my life and and as I would read and, and write essays about um, the ability of death penalty to deter crime or the inability to deter crime it's a it's a very complicated issue and sometimes all the surveys and all the facts will make you think 100% this way or sometimes, It'll make you think 100% the other way. It's a very difficult thing, and, and I think often um, what it comes down to is uh, people wanting to, be, to wanting to be sympathetic to the victim's families without being too easy on the convicted. And it, it can be it can be problematic. Uh, I feel like uh, when it comes down to it, especially with with cases like Willingham's case, it's just it's something that that people feel it in their gut as soon as they they hear about the tragedy. They you know you hear about the the kids dying in this horrible way. Not like John Lentini says, you could give them away to the state or to your parents-in-law or your own parents why he would decide if if he was in fact guilty to do that 
it's just uh, you hear the the details of the case and and sometimes your emotion runs away with you. Yeah, and I, I think that uh, beyond the punishment phase, you, you know, your emotions run away with you in, in all in all sorts of ways about the case. I think that that's uh, that's sort of the tightrope act of the film. Is is you know, I, like I like I was saying, I think we do we we give a space for emotion and we allow it to to breathe. Also, but I think that you know we're a nation of laws, and we and we for arson we have a standard that you have to prove up before you decide that there was a crime here, and before you even look for a suspect. And I think that um, those procedures matter, and they're really foundational philosophically to, to how we how we work as a country. Right. When you guys look at the um, at the information, the the law, the facts of uh, not just this case, but whatever you know about um, about death penalty cases in uh, in Texas, is it more rampant than than we know? Um, the use of bad forensics, uh, false testimony, uh, even racism um, in these cases is there is it more rampant than than we know or is it something that just because movies like yours and the thin blue line and 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 tv shows have focused on these uh miscarriages of justice is it more rampant or is it just something that you know uh is is only a, a several cases a dozen cases or whatever no i, th- I think it's rampant i think that you know, one thing gerald hurst told us is he He's involved in cases all over the country, and as is Lentini. And so the specific issue in this film is an issue everywhere. It's an issue everywhere where, like in rural places, where perhaps the people who are the arson investigators are not as well-trained, and where the dynamics in the Willingham case, where it's a small town, uh, they couldn't get a change of venue for the trial, and he was judged by jury of his peers who happened to be people who, you know, uh, in the small town who had, who formed an opinion uh, about him. And so, no, I think that, like, uh, arson is just one tiny part of a situation that happens all the time where uh, convictions happen based on all kinds of prejudices and all kinds of lack of information. Right. And... Um, so I think that um, there's a lot, there's a lot to be done. I mean, you know, frankly, the only reason we're talking with you now about this story is because the Innocence Project filed a complaint about it. Right. And that complaint happened many years after Willingham was executed, and it happened a long time after the conviction. Right. And if they hadn't done that, this would not be on anybody's radar. So there, there's no telling. Um, if you could go back and look at everything, uh, not just about arson, where it would lead and, and the amount of uh, convictions and and bad situations that have happened that we'll never know about uh, because there's no reason for anybody to bring them back up. Right. Yeah, I think I think that's all tr- very uh, true, and it's just the rampant part of it is, is there, but I think that, you know, it's all about your perspective, and I think that from somebody like John Bradley's perspective or a prosecutor's perspective, sure, you see tons of cases where the guilt is clear, it's, it's cut and dry, it's, you know, convict and move on to the next case um, from that perspective. But from an average citizen's perspective who 
the idea of an innocent person being convicted or you know spending extended times in prison even being killed for the crime is that's a that's a huge problem and that's even a few of cases of that isn't really tolerable for, right. for how we conduct ourselves or how we conduct ourselves as a society so I think that yeah it's, it's rampant and I think that uh, you know sure we, we do have a great system in the United States and, and I think as compared to many other places we, we do pretty well but I think that we could do a lot better and right. it's a good thing that that organizations like the Innocence Project are, are out there advocating for improvements. And it's a good thing that you're seeing prosecutors uh, implementing those improvements and, and, and you're seeing more intellectual capital at universities and law schools and Innocence Projects or in, in policy uh, studies being done that are that are examining all these things. Right. It's really work. Do you guys know how much is being done to uh, to deal with the exoneration of wrong, wrongful convictions in, in Texas now? Uh, well, you know, with the Willingham case, it, it, it definitely inspired, you know, the, the interesting thing at the end of the film where the Attorney General's office swoops in and ties the hands of the commission at the last minute uh, when they're about to issue a ruling on the case, they say, well, you can't actually rule on the, the Willingham case evidence. Um, they went as far as they could go, and they and they said, "Okay, well, separate from the case, we've this case has made us aware of a of what could be a systemic problem right. with, in Texas." And so they called for a review of all cases that seemed problematic. Right. The Texas Fire Marshal's office, and after that report, the Texas Fire Marshal's uh, office, the the fire marshal resigned, and uh, the new fire marshal is working with the Innocence Project of Texas to review these old arson convictions. Um, and, you know, so we're seeing progress. It's announced that they're, they're really serious about evaluating these cases and about making it clear to investigators you know, the standards that need to be followed and the education that needs to be had for people that aren't up to speed. That's great news. That's great to hear. Um, just uh, in fact, uh, this month we've had new developments in the case. Uh, can you talk a little bit about these um, about the posthumous pardon that his uh, family is going for? Sure. Uh, yeah. Well, a couple weeks ago um, at the Texas State Capitol, uh, the Willing Judy Kavner and Eugenia Willingham um, and uh, Patricia Cox, who are the surviving uh, members of Todd's family, uh, presented. I think several thousands of documents to the uh, to the Board of Pardons and Paroles, which is the board in Texas that deals with, uh, you know, criminal uh, matters of pardon and parole, just like it says. And, and But posthumously, the first the first uh, exoneration was that Tim Cole case that, that, Rick, that Evan Smith referenced in talking right. to Barry in the film. But they're basically asking them to review all this evidence that, that, that refutes the original case and uh, consider pardoning Willingham uh, posthumously. I think uh, it's interesting. I mean, we'll see how, how things go forward. It's great news. Uh, yeah. And, you know, but it, it's also, it's definitely a, a body that's doesn't have the best history as far as, you know, a lot of the criticism of, is they call it death by fax, you know. They, yeah, right. 
They, they don't convene and meet together in person. Uh, there's, there seems to be a, as in the Willingham case, you know, before I went to the governor's office, they went to the board of pardons and paroles and they didn't see any issues in the case. Um, I don't know if they should have at that point. I don't know if the Hearst, the Hearst report, um, they, I don't know if they passed over that. I think they did actually, but anyway, I, I, I'm not sure what the disposition will be, uh, what the chances are that they'll issue a pardon, but the fact that they're even considering it, I think is a good thing for the state right. and, uh, you know, for arson investigations, for, for, uh, for justice and, and considering wrongful convictions, it's a good thing. Right. I wanted to talk uh, a little bit about the um, actual, the, the film production and, and the, uh, the uh, technicals behind it, because I mean, this is obviously a, a podcast that's interested in filmmaking also. So um, could you, Steve, talk a little bit about um, any influences on the style? Like what, what, what movies were influencing you or what, what type of documentaries were influencing you? Yeah, I think uh, the most obvious influence is Errol Morris and The Thin Blue Line and Fog of War and all his movies. I think that uh, the the idea of making a film that is really beautiful to look at and that also has no narrator that lets people organically uh, express themselves in the film without having... In this case, without having a narrator connect all those bits, right. very much like what um, Errol Morris does usually, and a lot of other documentary filmmakers, I think, are, I think visually and structurally, we kind of owe a debt to him uh, in terms of the way we're trying to look at at crafting the movie, and um, I think that. Uh, uh, that was an aesthetic that we went for that also carried over into the recreations of the fire phenomenon. Absolutely, making yeah. Making it really beautiful. And, and uh, I mean, that was a great, it was a gift to us to get to make a film about fire. Like, it's really beautiful to shoot mm-hmm. it and watch it and people are drawn to it. So we had a lot of fun shooting that material. The close-ups, the, the B-roll, the slow motion of the fire and everything. It's really, really good stuff. Then technically, we used several different cameras. We uh, The primary interview camera was a Sony EX-1, mm-hmm. which is a terrific camera. And uh, But we used a 5D and a Rebel T2i uh, for other material, including like we did – Joe was like, a, like Bob Dylan of like the harmonica and band. <laughs> uh, and some of these things where he was running three cameras at a time in some of those hearings. And then – for some of the fire stuff, we shot with those in slow motion, um, and so we—that was really a treat to get to use, you know, a large sensor camera like that for for that type of material. Right. Um, so we, you know, we made this ourselves. We we used the cameras that we had and the lights that we had, and uh, and we basically did it for no money. We we got some help in post production. But we basically shot it on our own time on our equipment and cut it on in Final Cut Pro. Uh, was there ever talk of doing the movie in film, or was it always, for budgetary reasons, doing digital? We could never have done it on film. Right. No, it's like it would it would be you know film at one hundred and thirty dollars a roll, right. and then um, processing transfer. The ratio that we have uh, 
just from those forensic science commission meetings where we would burn through hours of material right. every time. Uh, we would never have done it. Basically, you know, the, the truth is, the film would not have been made if we had to shoot on film. Yeah. Because we did it with no money. Yeah. Uh, we did it with little cards that we could download and back up and then rewrite over. So I think that's the, I think that's good news for people because uh, you, there's not really a reason why you can't make the film that you'd like to make. Right. In the, in the old sense of like, you, know, you just have to, you know, the barrier to entry if the barrier to entry is paying for film and processing and film equipment and all, all that stuff, then you, you know, you're talking about a serious problem. And you're seeing a lot of films now, the best of which are really remarkable because they're, they don't have that limitation anymore. And so it's, it's, I'm, I'm big, you know, I teach film all the time too. And my big thing to all my students is like you're, the, the technology exists to make a film that you don't have to apologize for. Right. And it used to be that if you made a film on your own, you'd have to at some point in the conversation say, well, this is all the money we had and this is why it looks that way. Well, right. really the only limitation is what's between your ears, I have to say. It's like you, sure. if you can bring to it some preparation and a real thought about what you're doing, it's like that's, that's uh, really liberating. What was your post-production process like? Did you do all the editing, Steve? I did, and... Uh, Joe went through a lot of material. We, uh, in terms of the actual cutting, uh, I cut it in Final Cut Pro Seven. Okay. And uh, we just cut. We started cutting from the, you know, uh, those interviews are very long, and so from the very beginning, like immediately after shooting Gerald Hurst, uh, we would go through it and refine it from this raw unedited thing, and then make different sequences that were about different topics. So I sort of made these epic talking head movies where I pulled out the best material on each of the, right. you know, whether it was about the courts or whether it was about testimony from the trial or whatever, sorting through all that. And right. we did that for everybody so that we were able then to get rid of, um, as an editor, I'm always trying to get rid of 50% of what I have immediately because you just can't use sure. it. And then get down to what really is going to wind up going in the film, and then do that with everybody. And pretty soon, the cream rises to the top. You know, it's like you really figure out, like, oh, you know, we had Lentini and Hearst, and some places Lentini was more articulate, and some places Hearst was. Right. Luckily, like you said, they're both terribly authentic. Like you never feel like they're lying. Yes. You just get this intrinsic thing of like these people are the real deal, and whatever they say, I'm going to believe it. And that's that's what we felt in person. That's what you feel in the film, and so. It really is in great contrast to people like Bradley later on, where you go like, well, "What's really happening here?" It's like there's there's a very gut level. Uh, you know, it's like Malcolm Gladwell's Blink. There's something that you know in an instant about those guys right. that you can't articulate. And I say, and I would say this too, like that's the difference between a film like ours and print journalism, sure, where. Uh, we don't have to editorialize about whether people are being truthful or yes. not. You can look at it and, and come up with your own hunch. Absolutely. And people can't really, people have a hard time hiding that. Right. Um, and so, um, yeah, so that was a process of like kind of just trying to take a mountain of material and then get it down to what's usable. Right. And then trying to find a way to put one piece in front of the other piece until we have a structure. Because you were continuously editing, did you ever get to a rough cut, or was it always, you know, continuously editing, editing until we saw the the cut that's in the theaters? Oh 
no, no. We had we had rough cuts, you know, for several months before we had we had rough cuts before we got to that trial, right? That we shot. So it was constantly a revision thing, and then we were very lucky when we got to the end. We uh, John Pearson, who's a famous um, film uh, producer. Yep. Uh, he used to be a producer's rep, very well known for discovering Spike Lee right. and uh, Richard Linklater. Absolutely. And, uh, and uh, he teaches at UT, where I teach, and he agreed to adopt the film for his class, and we ran cut after cut after cut with, for him and his people. That's great. And no, really, because we could never have finished the film in the time that we did working in a vacuum. It's like we'd go in and run it, and people would go like, well, this doesn't make sense, or this is boring or this seems like C-SPAN yeah. and go back and recut it and show it again in two weeks. And so we were able to really put the pedal to the metal that's editorially great. that way. That's great. Being, trying to be open because that's the thing about documentaries. Like you have a lot of stuff. You cannot get a perspective of it. What you think is fascinating is just will kill people. And then what you think is boring is like maybe the most important thing. And so you just can't, you won't, to be able to have John in particular um, to to kind of weigh in on that made a tremendous difference. Right. Yeah, I think that there was a lot of there's a lot of serendipity about the, this film. You know, the way that Steve and I met, the way that what you were referring to with the technology. I mean, I, midway through production or after we shot the first forensic science commission meeting, I sold my EX3 and you know bought. Uh, a couple of Canon SLR bodies and a bunch of Zeiss lenses, and and you know we were able to get this this uh, classic cinema aesthetic for those those pieces that we might not have had access to even months before. Right. And you know with John Pearson, we ran the first cut that we had. We ran for John, and we were also ran for Graham Reynolds, who did the score ultimately. And they were the first people, you know, outside of, of my wife Alice and. You know, maybe Steve's wife Renee to, to look at the film, and to have a guy like John say, you know, not leave. <laughs> He's definitely the kind of guy that would not pull any punches, and and uh, and maybe he wouldn't throw any punches, but he'd probably leave if he wasn't into it. And he stuck around, and he talked to us, and he seemed really interested in the film. And then he offered to take it on with his class. And so, having someone with John's experience, and then having the youth of his class having these these you know juniors and seniors in college as our captive audience to really refine the cut that was a hugely lucky thing a lucky break for us but it's something that you would definitely recommend if if you can make a film entertaining to a junior in college that's about science and law yeah i think you've served your audience well and i think that meeting that uh, that bar was a was a really important clearance for us that, that really made the put the film in a different realm that where it, where it could compete really well and and and, uh, and succeed besides the the David Grant uh, article uh, how much prep work was going into uh, the interviews before you had them uh, was there you were you like so uh, familiar with the case from every single perspective before you even went to interview Hearst I think that we kind of learned it as we did it. Um, and in fairness, Reed, Reed Nelson did the preparation for that interview. I know he brought with him quite a stack of uh, questions and research that he had done. And uh, but I think on the whole, we sort of learned it 
I mean, you know the broad strokes of the story, and and we just sort of elicited out of them a retelling of that, and that's where a lot of those facts came from, and like facets that that we're able to kind of uh, get deeper into based on what they uh, said. Right. So, or disposition about the case. I mean, I know personally, in talking with Steve too, we you know we change our minds. Every, every month about like what we thought about one thing or another aspect of the case but yeah it definitely we, we had an idea of what we thought but then that would change and I think that happens in response hey okay. guys I'm going to have to run here in just a moment no problem Steve. Um, it's at 1.30 I think right now no um, problem Steve thank you so much for the time oh well, hey, well thank you it's a real honor um, to, to get to participate Absolutely. Um, just one more question. What, what's next for the film, and will you add to it? Will there be any sort of sequel to it? Will you continue following the uh, the, the news of it? I, I know we'll follow the news of it, and we're still in contact with people who were involved in that, including the people from the Innocence Project. And we're, we're trying to develop a – we're in the process of developing another film uh, that hopefully will start soon. Uh, that we really can't talk about, but, uh, but yeah, no, it's. I think that I don't. I can't imagine that we'll do a follow up. I can't see it. it maybe maybe that'll change, but uh, I think we've sort of exhausted ourselves on that. Sure. <laughs> well, any final words? Thank you so much, uh, Joe and Steve, for 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 joining me. Like I've said, I've I, I've said on several of these episodes and uh joe you obviously know i'm a big fan of the movie and i continue to to uh get people friends of mine family to to watch it because i think it's uh it's incredibly engaging and it's it's eye-opening and it did definitely uh affect my outlook on uh on the case and and the death penalty yeah, thanks. We really are honored to be on the show and, and, and to get to talk to you. And it's always uh, rewarding to have talk to people who've thought about it as much and, and who've really considered all of the implications and all of the finer points that that I, I think the film medium is really uniquely situated for. Right, there are things that you that you take away from it, and and that's why you know that's why I love film, and I think you know that's obviously why Steve's made a career in film, and I think that. It is. It's like rewarding as an audience member and as a filmmaker to, to be able to to take away that from something that's so fun to, to take in, you know? Right on. Yeah, I think that, yeah, I'm a big believer in the chaos theory, and I think this is a great example of that where you can never predict the outcome of what you're going to do, and certainly we've reaped so many benefits from making this film. Not the least of which is meeting so many great people. I mean, we met people at screenings all over the country who are just brilliant. Right. Who uh, were very complimentary. And that's its own reward because the whole time you're doing something creative, you're really in a vacuum hoping that it makes sense and that it's germane. And we, we you know, it's like, it's a great country. I have to say, it's like we, we, it's, uh, we've met nice people who are really smart, contemplative, uh, and appreciative. And, uh, that's really been a great benefit of the whole project. Well, thanks, guys. I hope you have a good day. Thank you. I saw it. I really enjoyed it. See you guys. Bye. 
That was a great talk. I am uh, I'm full of gratitude to um, to Joe and Steve for making the time to be on the program. Uh, they are uh, professional in the greatest sense of the word uh, and and legitimate in the greatest sense of the word. And I was so happy that they made time to be on the uh, on this this small and fledgling podcast of mine. So uh, yeah, absolutely gracious guys. So I haven't done a, an intro and an outro uh, on the past couple episodes, so I did want to give a chance to, to put some plugs in here. Um, my Twitter is uh, Mr. Greggles, M-I-S-T-E-R-G-R-E-G-G-L-E-S. Uh, go in there, uh, send me questions, comments, uh, interact with the podcast. Uh, same thing with our Facebook, facebook.com slash debatablepodcast. Go over there and like us, please. Um, show your support for the uh, podcast. I'm doing this for free, and I'm, I'm doing this to, to really uh, get people to interact with the show. I really want uh, questions and comments. I want to refine the show constantly and, and get better and play with the form and, uh, you know, get get people's music involved. If you're a musician or you know someone who's a musician and they're looking for more exposure, uh, definitely put them in contact with me. I'm always looking for, for new music to uh, to use and to uh, to talk talk to musicians about their music. It's just, it's something that I'm, I'm really passionate about. Um, um, and of course, our Tumblr, debatablepodcast.tumblr.com. It's a great source for our streaming. Uh, we have links for download on iTunes and, of course, downloading uh, on uh, on Lipson. Uh, show notes, good tagging. I have a very, I keep very good uh, uh, tabs on the on the tagging, and uh, they're very accurate. So, if you wanted to find everything on the show that has to deal with podcast or everything on the on, I mean, everything on the on the website that has to do with podcast, it's under there, like under podcast. And if you wanted to find everything that had to do with Breaking Bad, got Breaking Bad on there. So I've got some posts on Breaking Bad. So it's a, it's a great. Uh, resource for tagging. That's why I keep pointing people to the Tumblr. It's it's the best uh, uh, um, source for for the show for the debatable podcast. Anyway, next week, a good friend of mine, Josh Eisenberg, is finally on the program, and we had a a, a, a contentious but loving. Uh, conversation just like most of our relationship is and uh, I had a really good time so look for that next week Uh, thank you for joining us I love you guys see you next week The music on today's podcast was brought to you by MusicAlley.com. Uh, go on over there, check them out. I have the uh, the bands and their songs on the show notes, along with links to their band pages on Music Alley. Uh, go check them out. If you uh, like the music, uh, download them. Support those artists.